This week, a Martian show home imagines life on the red planet. It's not exactly a walk in the park. Because of the thin atmosphere, you have a lot of ultraviolet from the sun, which can get through and basically fry anything on the surface. And then at night, it's minus 100 degrees centigrade. Plus what we know about cannabis's effects on the brain. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 17th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker. The year is 2037. A small band of brave souls have travelled thousands upon thousands of miles from their home to settle in a dry canyon with an inhospitable atmosphere and freezing temperatures. Their odyssey is the premise of National Geographic's new docudrama, Mars. This is how humankind came to call Mars home. Told by those who made the first footsteps and the most daring minds of our time. This opportunity is amazing for life to go beyond Earth. The show imagines the journey of the first people to land on Mars in a mission run by the fictional International Mars Science Foundation and is interweaved with interviews from real astronomers in the present day. To celebrate the launch of the show, Nat Geo have built a Mars show home in Greenwich, London. Lizzie Gibney persuaded a Mars expert to take a tour with her. Fed up with Earth this week? How about Mars? I've come to the Greenwich Observatory in London where, standing outside the beautiful old red brick observatory, there is another red structure. This time it's more like a hobbit hole. It's a mock-up of the kind of building we might live on someday, perhaps in the 2030s, when humans actually live on Mars. I'm here with Andrew Coates, who's a planetary scientist at UCL. And Andrew, what are the differences between Mars and Earth? What kind of conditions and challenges do we face on the Martian surface? Well, first of all, Mars is a lot smaller than Earth, so uh, th- and that means that the gravity actually is quite a lot less. It's about one-third of Earth's gravity. Um, but there are other big differences. The, the atmosphere of Mars is very thin. It's about 1% of the Earth's atmospheric pressure. So that has some problems for the environment um, on Mars, uh, which, which that produces, and it also makes it difficult to really land on Mars as well. And so what are the big challenges in terms of getting there in the first place? We know we've had a a bunch of probes have have gone to Mars. I think seven have successfully landed. Um, But it's, it's not an easy thing to do, is it? Yeah, landing on Mars is really difficult because of that thin atmosphere. So you've got to have enough time for parachutes to work and retro rockets to get to, to get anything to land on Mars. So it's a complicated thing. It's more complicated than, for example, landing on the moon where there's no atmosphere. Because of the thin atmosphere, you have a lot of ultraviolet from the sun, which can get through and basically fry anything on the surface. The other big challenge, really for building anything for Mars, like we are with the ExoMars 2020 rover, is the temperature on Mars. On a sort of warm day on Mars, a little bit like it is now, you know, sort of zero degrees or just above. And then at night, it's minus 100 degrees centigrade. And anything going on up to the surface of, of Mars has to take that into account in the design. So the people who've designed this exhibition have placed our Mars habitat in an area called Valles Marineris. Would that be a good realistic spot to send people to on Mars? Well, Valles Marineris would be a challenge to land in. Um, It is a very large scar on the surface of Mars, roughly on the equator, but um, much larger than the Grand Canyon. It dwarfs that, but it's not necessarily the best place to land. 
because you'd like to have water underneath the surface to actually help in the construction, for example, of the, of the thick walls which are needed. Um, you need to be uh, able to have that. And so there are better areas on Mars where you could potentially go. There are areas on Mars where there are caves, actually, naturally uh, formed caves underneath the surface. Um, so that actually might be a good place to be sending people if we, if we really want to go in that direction. But actually, you know, personally, um, I'd much prefer to be answering the question first of was there ever or even is there life on Mars now before we think about sending people because humans naturally produce lots of waste products interact with their environment um, you know we see this on earth obviously and um, so you'd like to sort of contain all that and make sure that you're not contaminating the environment so it's not quite Martian temperatures out here but it is pretty cold so maybe we should go take a look inside absolutely uh, the hatch I guess small place to live wouldn't it? It certainly would and um, the bed looks quite small actually and um, <laughs> a few other uh, few other issues but um, it's good to see that it's got nice thick walls though. So we've got there's like a small cabin style bed where I guess the astronaut who lived here would sleep. Um, there's a big console where and a monitor where I guess you would talk to earth. There's an antenna a coffee making machine that would be important. I'm perfect. I'm guessing this oh you would like press this is a microwave. It's a little Martian microwave. Oh yeah yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just guessing put it outside hey. and the UV would fry it. <laughs> <laughs> Much easier. There's a an exercise machine I guess this yeah. is. Would that be something that would be important for astronauts to do? Yes, it certainly would. I mean the, the Mars gravity is a third that of Earth. So um so sort of keeping the fitness going would, is is very important. So yes, I'm sure that'd be a very important part of keeping somebody alive. Yeah. Up towards the ceiling we've got some plants growing haven't we? How, how realistic is that? I think that's a good idea to have that inside because obviously you would have the, the atmosphere would be correct for, for human life and also for plant life as well. So you couldn't possibly grow, um, uh, grow plants out in the, open, uh, in the open air on Mars in the, given the very thin atmosphere, dust storms, radiation, all that. So it's actually having it inside is a great idea and this would be part of a source of food. But as to how much of that you would need um, in a year, you know, and does it all work in terms of the amount you could actually um, uh, grow by that technique? Um, looks like it might last a couple of weeks, um, what I can see here. And so one of the potential reasons for coming to Mars is if there is some big catastrophe on Earth. But of course, the other reason for sending people to Mars is that their people could be scientists and we could be studying Mars in a, perhaps a different way to how rovers do it now. What would be the advantages? Yeah, well, our, our 2020 rover, for example, the ExoMars 2020 rover, is going to take, um, it's going to drive a few kilometres around the surface of Mars. It's going to drill underneath the surface for the first time, but it will take um, about four months or something like that to do it. If you did have a person on Mars, lots of decision-making ability, obviously, on the spot that you could um, you'd decide to go to that rock, rock over there, you'd be able to do that relatively quickly. But for me, that would be at a huge cost. And actually, um, we're doing the right thing at the moment in terms of, of sending rovers and trying to answer this focused question, was there life on Mars uh, ever? And um, as I say, before taking humans or anything like that, we actually need to answer that question first. Andrew Coates from UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory, touring the Martian show home with Lizzie Gibney. Andrew works on the ExoMars 2020 mission. You can find out more about that online at exploration.esa.int. For more on the show home and to check out the Nat Geo series Mars, go to the ambitiously named website makemarshome.com. Unless you have in fact been living on Mars, you'll know that last week was US election week. But Americans didn't just vote for a new president last Tuesday. In different states, there was a whole host of legislation up for public vote. 
and the results of one vote made many Californians very happy indeed. Good evening. You know, many people here would say history has been made here, and that moment came about 30 minutes ago when this happened. Marijuana is now legal. That's right. CBS was reporting that marijuana, also known as cannabis, has been legalized for recreational use in California. And California wasn't the only state to do this. Nevada and Massachusetts also voted along the same lines. But how much do scientists know about what cannabis does to the brain when it's used recreationally? Oliver Howes is a psychiatrist who's interested in psychosis, and he's been asking himself exactly that question. I became interested in understanding the effects of cannabis on the, on the brain because of seeing the effects of cannabis in some of my patients where it seemed to sometimes precipitate an illness or worsen an illness. At the same time, patients sometimes also say that they find that taking cannabis helps them. Really, it, this, uh, this argues for understanding the science and the scientific effects of, of, of cannabis on the brain, because only then can we understand what aspects of cannabis are going to be more problematic and that we need to consider for the future. With that in mind, Oliver's co-authored a review out this week looking at one of the key compounds in cannabis, THC, and its effects on the brain. So why is it so important to understand these effects? So I think it's becoming increasingly important to understand the effects of cannabis on the brain because cannabis is being used more and more widely. It's now been legalized for recreational or medicinal use in a large number of states in the U.S., and it's been decriminalized in a number of countries around the world, including Europe. In surveys, over 50% of young Americans report to using cannabis at some time in, in uh, the previous year. And people are using these not just in increasing numbers, but also frequently at very early ages. So we need to know what effects this is going to have on, on the brain and the consequences of that for people who might be starting to use these substances quite early in their lives. How extensively has its action in the brain been studied previously? Given that cannabis has been around for centuries, it's surprising how little research there was done on, on the effects of cannabis on the brain until relatively recently. And even then... The studies in humans have only begun to be done in the last few years. What do we know as things stand? What is clear from the animal studies is that cannabis and its, one of its active components, something called THC, affects the brain's reward system. And in particular, you, when you give uh, THC or, or take cannabis as a one-off, you get a release of dopamine in the brain's reward systems. What's also become clear in the last year or two is that in human users that use cannabis regularly and have used it in many cases for many years, you get a blunting of the brain's reward system, in particular a blunting of the, of the dopamine system. So that seems the greater the blunting of the system, the more people have difficulties with motivation. So that's what we already know. What are the big outstanding questions that still remain to be tackled? A key one is understanding the effect of cannabis use during 
earlier brain development, particularly adolescent brain development, because that's often the time period when young people start trying out cannabis. And we really need to understand if that is a particularly sensitive period or not. I think another key question that we need to understand is what happens in people that have used cannabis to their brain's dopamine system after they stop using cannabis? Does, the, does this blunting of, of dopamine that we see in people who've used it for a long time, does that recover? To what extent is this kind of evidence about the effects of cannabis taken into account when policy is actually being made? Policy decisions about cannabis take into account many different factors, but I think they should take into account the scientific evidence on the effects of a substance on the brain and the potential risks and benefits of that. And the degree to which that's been the case so far is unclear. That was Oliver Howes, who's based at Imperial College and King's College London. His paper on the effects of cannabis is available at nature.com forward slash nature. Still to come in the news chat, the Italian stem cell entrepreneur who's under investigation again. And the CRISPR editing technique is tested in a person for the first time. But now it's the research highlights, read by Kerry Smith. Marine animals often eat plastic waste in the oceans, and it could be because it smells like their food. Seabirds like albatrosses eat little crustaceans called krill, which in turn have a diet of phytoplankton. When the krill eat the plankton, it releases a chemical called dimethyl sulfide, which the seabirds use to sniff out their meal. But the chemical is also collecting on plastic debris. A study of bird behaviour showed that birds more responsive to the chemical ate more plastic. One solution would be to create and use plastics that can't pick up the chemical signature and therefore don't smell so tasty. Science Advances has that paper. Human leprosy has been claiming some surprising victims, red squirrels in Britain and Ireland. Red squirrel numbers are dwindling in the UK, and scientists examined over 100 bodies to pinpoint some reasons why. 13 showed signs of leprosy, like skin lesions. All of them, plus some squirrels without any symptoms, were carrying leprosy-driving bacteria. Leprosy was thought only to affect primates and, bizarrely, armadillos, but this study suggests it could be another threat to red squirrels in Britain, which are already up against other infections and grey squirrels introduced from North America. More in science. Time now for this week's news chat, and Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello, Adam. So, of course, the big news this week has been kind of Donald Trump-themed, but we will discuss that in back chat. For now, a break from the situation in the US. In China, the CRISPR gene editing technique has been used as a therapy in a human for the first time. Indeed, it's this technique that has been taking the biotech and just basic research uh, world by storm in recent years. And the news is that it was for the first time used in an experimental therapy on humans. It's only a, a first safety test now. They, they've administered this therapy on one person. They, they're planning to try it on a few or more people. So what does this therapy actually involve and what are they hoping to treat with this therapy? So what they did is they took the, the patient's own immune cells and they applied this technique, CRISPR-Cas9, to the cells to edit some of the genes in the cells. 
and make them uh, more aggressive towards this particular kind of cancer. Then they let the cells reproduce in the, in the lab and they re-injected them into the patient. So in the end, it's the patient's own cells that are just tweaked to, um, to, to be more effective against the cancer. And at what stage is this now? Have they just done it or did they know the results? It will be a while. They only started the therapy uh, at the end of last month. And so far, it's not even clear that the, pa- the patient isn't having adverse reactions. Have these kinds of techniques been used before, if not with CRISPR, using other techniques to gene edit? Yes, um, but, but CRISPR-Cas9 is different in that it is more efficient, it's easier. For many years, there's been the dream of doing gene therapy uh, maybe sending you know, genetically engineered viruses into the body to inject new genes in cells. But CRISPR is supposed to be easier to target and easier to apply. Are there other plans then to take advantage of how easy CRISPR is to use to, for other techniques? Absolutely. So the, uh, our reporter um, in the story mentions and quotes several lab leaders from around the world who are also hoping to do this soon. Okay, let's move on to our next story, Davide, which is actually about another person called Davide, who, unlike you, as far as I know, has been getting in trouble with the law. Yes, it's been a saga that nature has covered for years now, this uh, so-called Stamina Foundation, which is not a foundation, it's a a for-profit organization, which has performed non-approved therapies on patients who are terminal with various diseases, who are desperate. And the Italian authorities told this organization to stop. And then uh, ultimately, Davide Vannoni, the leader, uh, was convicted to 22 months in prison. Although the sentence was suspended and, and he was basically on probation under orders of not performing this procedure anymore. Now it emerged that he went and found a loophole by going to uh, Tbilisi, Georgia. So he found a, a, a hospital there that was willing to let him do the therapy there. And uh, this has been covered in the Italian media and our, our, our uh, reporter has confirmed all the details. What does it seem he's currently doing? Is he just carrying out the same procedures he was before, as far as we know? It sounds like it, yes. It sounds like it's pretty much the same procedure which has been deemed dangerous and, and probably ineffective. And normally when someone's on probation, you would have thought they're not allowed to commit the same offence they're on probation for. How's, how's he getting away with this? And here it's where it gets murky because the plea bargain that he signed with the prosecutor said that he was not allowed to perform the procedure anymore um, but it seems that the legal details are uh, a bit uncertain on whether this uh, ban can be enforced uh, in other countries outside Italy. It seems like a bit of a tricky thing in that scientifically it should just be a blanket ban, but if it only applies in one country, it's not very effective. That's right. And if it doesn't, then it's up to the, the medical authorities in each country to, to regulate things. Thank you, Davide. Slightly shorter show than usual this week. That's because we've all been rushing around covering the surprise result of the US election. You'll find plenty on that on our news site, nature.com forward slash news. And keep an ear out for Backchat out in the next few days to hear Nature reporters' take on what Donald Trump means for science. I'm Noah Baker. 
And I'm Adam Levy. 